Please open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 9. Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing to make our way through this gospel, and we are coming today to a few more miracles of Jesus. If you remember, chapters 8 and 9, Matthew goes out of chronological order, and according to the theme of Jesus' authority, especially over illness, he compiles a list of stories of Jesus' healings and puts them together thematically in chapters 8 and 9, and we are coming to the end of that section today. I've titled the sermon, Son of David, Have Mercy on Us, and I'm going to read the passage for you. It's Matthew 9, verses 27 to 34. Matthew 9, starting in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, Son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray again together briefly. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this reading of your word, and then as we begin to work through this passage, that you would bless uh, the meaning of this text to us, encourage us, challenge us where we need to be challenged, and I pray ultimately that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, about whom this passage is focused. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've got two points for today, and I'm going to spend the the good majority of my sermon on the first point, just so you know. The first point is the faith of two blind men, verses 27 to 31. And then the second point is the transformation of a mute, demon-oppressed man, verses 32 to 34. So the faith of two blind men, point one, and the transformation of a mute, demon-oppressed man, point two. And I just want to say that I found particularly helpful in putting my sermon together, a sermon by Daniel Doriani, so I'm leaning on some of his outline and some of his points to help me construct parts of this message. His commentary has been very helpful in the Gospel of Matthew. So I want to begin by saying this. So throughout the New Testament, we're very used to Jesus doing miraculous signs. In fact, they're often called signs or signs and wonders. And John's Gospel that we went through a number of years ago is particularly strong on this point. In John's gospel, he mentions these seven signs, these particularly chosen miracles that show Jesus' power in a unique way. And what we discover is the miracles are not usually just about the miracle. In fact, ultimately, they're never just about the miracle. Let me, let's say a couple things. Jesus' compassion for the people he's healing is absolutely real, and it is an, a true love for these people. He felt compassion is the most common emotion we hear of Christ, affection we hear of Christ is the compassion he has toward those in need. So it is a real healing, it's a historic healing, and it is done out of a real love of Christ for the one in need. But the healings always point beyond themselves to something larger and greater than themselves. And just to mention a couple of well-known ones, in John's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000, right? We all know the feeding of the 5,000. 
And after that happens, the crowd, the many thousands are following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee. And what does Jesus say to the crowd? He says, yeah, I know, you're, you're pursuing me. You're, you're, at, you're seeking me, but not because you saw the signs. In other words, not because you understood the significance, this, the point of the signs that I just did, but because you had your fill of bread. You're just looking for the miracle itself. You just want free food. That's what you're after. You're not getting what the significance of these signs is. You're not seeing that. You just want the, the, the pointer. You don't want the reality. So back, uh, uh, flashback to when our family would go on vacations. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, we, we drove everywhere we went on vacation. And uh, this would be to either Texas or Massachusetts, and we did this uh, every year uh, pretty much. And uh, these would be long, two-day long drives up to Massachusetts with my dad driving and then the, the brothers in the back, who knows what we were doing. And um, what you would inevitably have is around lunchtime. Uh, we would start passing exits, and your family has done this too, and you see the signs coming, right? The big blue signs, and you're looking for what restaurant, fast food, or whatever it is you want to go to, and suddenly there's a little family dispute. You know, everyone always, I always wanted to do whatever everyone else wanted to do, right? No, I, I, you always have your own opinion, and you don't know if you should voice it or not, and should I say it? You always act like, you know, I'm good with whatever, but you quietly want to go here and not there. And anyway, so when it, we see these blue signs coming, everyone's squinting their eyes, and we want to see what is up at the next exit. Where do we want to stop to eat? and your stomach is growling, and it's getting late, and suddenly you find where you want to go, and you choose, and you go. And we've all had that experience, but I'll tell you one thing we never did. We never once, not once, pulled over at the blue sign and got out as a family and got ready for our meal. Never did that. I don't think I've ever seen that. Driving down the road, you never see a family get out and get around the, 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 the sign outside. Why? Well, because we know the sign is not the point. The sign is the pointer, and it's pointing to what we actually need, which is beyond itself and greater than itself. And Jesus, when he does these miracles, yes, they're real, they're historic, and they're acts of love, but they are signs. And the point is not to stop and park our car right in front of the healing of the blind men, or even the casting out of a demon, or even a mute man who is now able to speak. These things are wondrous and amazing and stunning and real and true, and all that is right. But they're not the ultimate point. The point is what these things are signifying, what they are pointing to, which is beyond themselves, which tells us something about who Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do. And Jesus is telling us through these very uh, miracles done in this text that he has come to usher in the age of the Messiah. We just looked at uh, Isaiah 35 at the beginning of the service. I read that chapter. Remember, 700 years before Jesus, and what is the sign that the Messianic age is upon us? Isaiah writes this, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Does that sound like our passage today? Sounds exactly like our passage. The blind are able to see, the mute is able to speak, they're leaping for joy. This is a sign. It's much bigger than a small localized important miracle. It is pointing to something much greater. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us something about his person, he is the son of David, he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and he is coming to issue in a new creation. He is coming to do away with death by the death of himself. He is doing, he's going to do away with sin and he's going to usher in the new creation that is coming. And that's part of what is signified. At another level, as we work through this text, we will see the spiritual significance of blindness being taken away applies directly to us at conversion with our spiritual blindness being removed in Christ. Let's begin working through our text here. The faith of two blind men, again, verse 27. Let me read that again for us. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. 
Now, if you may recognize this from other Gospels, but this is actually not a repeated story. Uh, there is blind Bartimaeus in Mark's Gospel who says very similar words and is also blind, but it's a different location and different details. It's not the same story. This particular healing of these particular blind men is only recorded by Matthew in this particular section. There are other stories of other blind men, but that, this is not them. This is a uniquely recorded story by Matthew only, and Matthew has these men saying what other blind men will say later, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, there's a lot packed into that one sentence, and there's three things. Daniel Doriani helps me with this. There are three things that we see that these blind men believe about Jesus, and these are significant for every single one of us. Number one, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David. That's what that means. Number two, they believe Jesus is merciful. Have mercy on us, Son of David. And number three, they believe that Jesus is powerful, that is, He is able to grant them what they are asking for, which is an astonishing thing. So lest we write these men off as maybe not having much theology, that would not be correct. This is the first time since Matthew 1.1 that Jesus is addressed as son of David. That's Matthew's opening. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This connects back to our Sunday school class about the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, and ultimately it's pointing to Jesus, the son of both David and Abraham. These men, Don Carson says, were blind physically, but they saw much better about Jesus than most people who could see saw. Uh, Many of the people around him did not see who Jesus was. They had eyes, they could see physically, but they could not put the pieces together and see what he was really about. But these men with no sight were able to see much more clearly who Jesus really was. He truly was the son of David. He was the promised Messiah. He is the king of Israel. And they call out for him to show uh, him to, to show them mercy. Number two, they believe he's merciful. Now, let's just look at this for a second, because this text is so brief. I mean, you, you have this experience. If you, if you read your Bible at all, you, you know exactly what this is like. You read a short little passage, verses 27 to 31. It's a tiny little story. Remember, Matthew in these chapters is giving less details and more stories. He's packing in the stories with very few details. So it doesn't seem like there's much here. Just two men are healed. But you read this over and over, and you start noticing every phrase and line tells us a little more, paints the picture a little clearer of what's happening. Let's just look at it again, because we can miss things. Verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, I mean, you just don't think about this, but Jesus is moving. He's walking when the story starts. He's not walking when the story ends. So let's see what happens. Two blind men followed him. So you see, Jesus is walking somewhere with his disciples. The two blind men hear, they don't see, they hear that he's coming, they know who he is, and they begin with help, I'm sure, to follow along. This would be very challenging for them in their condition, but they're following Jesus. They're walking along, being helped, no doubt, following after Jesus, and they're crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, I'll just say, the other story, which Matthew records later, of other blind men have a similar account. You remember? When they're calling out, son of David... The crowd says, oh, be quiet. A couple of blind men, some beggars, get out of here. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't want to hear you. He doesn't want to talk to you. Jesus absolutely silences that nonsense. He says, no, I want to speak to these people. He draws near and speaks to these individuals. Verse 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, okay, pause there. Do you notice that Matthew doesn't indicate that Jesus said anything to the blind men while they're on the road? Now, I don't want to read too much into silence, but it sounds like Jesus has not actually responded to them until they get into the house. So let's just slow down. I don't know how long, but it had to be some amount of time. They're walking, the blind men are getting help, they're following, and they're crying out, and they hear what? 
nothing from the son of David. They're desperate. They're in need. They're crying aloud. No doubt they're making a scene in some sense. Jesus says nothing to them that is recorded. There is no indication of him drawing near. This is an unusual moment where Jesus does not show immediate and obvious compassion. Does it remind you of the Seraphonician woman, also called the Canaanite woman in another gospel? It's one of the most wonderful little texts in Matthew. It's in other gospels as well. Do you remember this? The woman is non-Jewish, Seraphonician woman, Canaanite ancestry. She's called a Canaanite woman in one text. She comes and her daughter is, I believe, demon-possessed, something along those lines, and she says, Lord, please help. And what does it say? Jesus said nothing to her. And the disciples said, Lord, can you make her go away? She keeps calling after us. And the Lord says, first of all, they're not, not calling after us. She's <laughs> calling after me, but okay. He doesn't say anything there. And then he keeps talking and Jesus says, um, you know what? Uh, it's not right for me to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Wow. Jesus just put her in the category of a Gentile dog, which she was in the way the Jewish people thought at the time, but this is pretty harsh coming from the Lord Jesus himself. You think, what is happening? But the woman takes those harsh words of Jesus and she owns them. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. And the Lord turns to her and says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you have requested. That's amazing. Sometimes Jesus puts on a severe face because he is testing the person who's coming to him. He meant well for this woman, but he put on a severe face. He ignored her at first, and then he said something very harsh. Basically put her in the category of a Gentile dog. I'm, I'm not giving, I came here to give food to the children, the, the Israelites, not to the, to the Gentile dog. She says, I am, I'll, I'll own it. I'm a Gentile. I, I'm, I'm not part of Israel, but I'll tell you, even the crumbs fall off the table from the children and the dogs lick them up. I'll own my position. Give me a little crumb of a miracle from your table. And the Lord smiles, no doubt. The Lord looks with blessing and the Lord uh, does as she requested. Well, some, something similar seems to be happening right here. The blind men are following and Jesus appears to say nothing to them and they continue to follow him. Let me ask you, when hardships come providentially into life, do we give up on Jesus very quickly? The mark of a false convert in Matthew 13 is the parable of the rocky, the, the parable of the soils, the rocky soil. Remember, the word of the kingdom goes into the ground and it immediately bursts out of the soil. The roots are trying to look for some vegetation, but the roots can't go but an inch or two deep because they would have limestone in that culture that was very shallow under the surface, thick limestone. The, 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 the plant begins to sprout, the root hits the limestone, and about two inches into the soil begins to spread out flat. The sprout comes up quickly, but before long, the, the sun is going to burn that plant and it's going to die. Why? Jesus says, these are people who receive the word, the gospel of the kingdom. They receive it with joy, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It would be very tempting for the Syrophoenician woman or for these blind men to say, well, I tried calling out to the Lord. He didn't immediately give me what I wanted. He must not care, or maybe he's not even real. I'm done with this whole thing. I mean, I, I one time had uh, someone say something not far from that to me, uh, uh, someone who I cared greatly about, said something close to those very words as this person began to walk away from the Christian faith. So this is not theoretical. This is something that we struggle with. When Jesus does not react the way we immediately want, do we walk away or do we continue in persistence and endurance calling out to him for mercy? Now think about Jesus here. Jesus, no doubt, has had a long day ministering, healing. People come to him in the dozens and the scores and the hundreds of people are coming from all around Galilee in that area to be healed. Remember, Jesus is just trying to find moments where he can be alone 
Remember Mark chapter 1? He's been healing all day long. The house is, there's a line of people. Demon possession and illnesses. Everyone around who's sick is brought. Lame, crippled, blind, deaf. They're all brought. And Jesus is healing one after another after another. And it says, what happens? The next morning, Mark records, he got up before the sun came up while it was still dark. And he went off to a desolate place so he could pray. Jesus was trying to find any little area he could find to go have communion with, with his father. And he had to go out while it was still dark. And what did the disciples do? They immediately go try to find him. And they say, Lord, people are looking for you. What are you doing? And the Lord is looking for those moments. Well, here's a moment where the Lord, no doubt, is looking for physical rest. Jesus was truly God, but he was also truly man. I mean, what must that have felt like for Jesus to be tired, to be exhausted? We're told in John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus, wearied as he was from the day of walking, was sitting next to the well when the woman approached. Wearied. God wearied because he is God made flesh. And in his human nature, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and our weaknesses. He knows what it is like to be wearied. And Jesus comes into the home. Now, I don't want to read too much between the lines, but it would seem as though Jesus is looking for a moment of rest, perhaps a moment of recuperation, isolation. You wonder why he was asleep on the boat, right? He gets into the boat and he falls asleep on the cushion in the stern. Why? Because he's exhausted. Even when the storm starts, he is exhausted. Well, Jesus, no doubt, is looking for a moment of rest, and he goes into the home, and what happens? The blind men follow him right into the home. So this, this is convicting for me, because I don't do well on this point of application, so how about a hypocrite giving you a point of application? Don't you love that right now? This is something I desperately struggle with. How do we do when a real need comes up that interrupts time where we've set aside for rest, relaxation, and comfort? When, it, when a real need arise, arises, an act of love, an act of service that you know in your conscience you should do, but it's going to ruin this set-aside time of rest that you had planned for the day. You're going to sit back and watch the game. You're going to watch this show. You're going to do this thing, listen to a podcast. You're going to just hang out in the backyard, whatever it might be, and there's something that comes up, and you just know in your conscience, the Lord would have me to go serve this person right now. I think those are the hardest moments in life to do what is right, right. So often we can, we can carve out those moments and say, Lord, this is my time. Don't intervene. Don't interfere. This is what I'm up to. And the Lord Jesus was no. He goes into the home, no doubt, to rest, and yet difficulty comes in behind him. Trial, difficulty comes in. Need comes in behind him. And Jesus doesn't say, go away. He begins to interact with and engage these two blind men. Now look at what they say. Again, verse, <clears throat> verse 27 at the end. Have mercy on us, son of David. Spurgeon has reminded me of these kinds of words. He said, it's a good thing in these stories that the person does not plead his or her merits or resume. The blind men don't say, well, I come from a royal family. They don't say, well, I have a very wealthy ancestry. I have a great lineage. I have very devout in my religious practices. They don't mention a word about merit, resume, status, money, none of that. What they do is they simply present their need before the Lord. And the Lord loves to hear the prayers of the needy and the humble and the desperate. And so often those people are the same group, the needy, the humble, and the desperate. These people don't brag. They don't boast. They don't put their parading of righteousness before God. You owe it to me, Lord. Look at all that I've done. You owe me a healing. Not a whiff of that. They come and have nothing but need. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. How do you approach the Lord when you go to commune with the Lord? Don't, don't go and boast of righteousness. We go with our need. We say, Lord, I am anxious about this upcoming thing in my life. I need you to please help me and comfort me. 
Lord, I'm afraid of this circumstance that looks so difficult, it looks beyond anything I'm capable of handling. And I don't think in my own strength I am sufficient to handle this upcoming trial. Lord, please strengthen me moment by moment with your new morning mercies. Give me all that I need and help me to know sufficient to the day is the trouble and evil therein and that every morning your mercies will be new for me. Remind me, God, that you lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, and surely goodness and mercy will follow. Pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We do actually come before the Lord on the basis of merit. It's just not ours. It's the merit of the Lord Jesus. His blood, his righteousness. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever dared pray in my name, amen? That would be bad. Don't try filling in your name. In my name, Lord, that's not a good way to pray. Why do we say in Jesus' name or through Christ, amen? We say that because the only access point we have with the Father is the merciful, loving sacrifice, uh, sacrifice of the Son. That is the access point with the Father. It is mercy, it is not merit that we come before God with. Next, they, they admit that Jesus is powerful, have mercy on us, son of David. You say, what's, what's the big deal here? Well, you know, I, I, had to, I had to look into this to make sure I was getting this right. And if you know of an exception, I'd be, I'd be, please, after the service, don't do it now. But after the service, please tell me if I've got something wrong here. But as far as I know, there is not a single person in the Old Testament who is healed of blindness. It's hard to figure that out. But that's best I can tell. There is not a single person in the Old Testament who's healed of blindness. And in the New Testament, virtually no one, except the only, only other example I can think of, there might be a few more, is uh, when Ananias goes to see Paul, Saul, right after he's converted, and Ananias says, the Lord Jesus sent me to you to remove the scales, and scales fall from his eyes, and he's able to see. And Jesus is directly involved with that healing of blindness. But outside of that, Jesus is pretty much the healer of blindness in the Bible. Pr pretty much it's Jesus. And it's amazing that these two men have the faith that Jesus can do something that no one in human history till now has ever been able to do. Don't sell these men short in their faith in Jesus. They believe he's able to do something that not even Elijah or Elisha did, bringing sight to the blind. Just to back that up, you remember John chapter 9, I think years ago, I think Scott, my brother, preached on this text, the man born blind, remember that story? It's a wonderful text if you haven't read it in a while, John 9. He's, he starts off confused, I'm very confused about who Jesus is, and by the end of it, he comes to worship Jesus. But there's an amazing line. This man born blind, healed, he says, the man who is blind, who can, who can see, says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. These two men have tremendous trust in the son of David who is in front of them. I think I've mentioned this once before. Every once in a while, I like to go on YouTube and uh, look up videos like this. And maybe you've seen these too. Sometimes they're viral videos. I love these videos. I have to admit, sometimes I get teary-eyed and I, you know, you gotta just act like nothing's happening. But it, it's, the, it's the videos where people who either are deaf from birth or have very severe hearing disorder or are, are colorblind, something like that, and they get the glasses that fix colorblindness. Have you seen some of these videos? Or they get the, I can't remember what they call them, the, the implants for their ears that they put on the back of the head and into the ear. And then you'll have a girl who's 12 years old or you'll have a mother who's 28 years old who've, who've not been able to hear their whole life. And the doctor sits there. I can think of one story. The girl's about 28 years old. She's sitting there. And uh, they, they put it in, and the nurse is sitting there, and she starts turning the volume up. 
And for the first time ever in her life, she begins hearing volume clearly. And at first, she, she goes, uh, wow. Like, she kind of has this look of surprise on her face. And what happens? After about three seconds in almost every video, what happens? The person starts weeping. They cover their face, and they start weeping very intensely because they are experiencing something we experience all the time, take for granted all the time. For the first time, they're experiencing it. With colorblindness, there's these videos. They put on the glasses, right? I remember one, this one made me laugh. This is older guy. He's got to be in his 60s, and he's, he's goes, he goes, I, he goes, you guys are filming me? He said, I, I always see these videos. People always cry. I'm not going to cry. He gets the videos. He gets the glasses. Puts it on. He looks like a tough guy. He puts the glasses on. About three seconds later, the dude is bawling. Okay, he just starts crying. He's got his face covered up. He looks around. He sees the flowers. He sees his kids. He sees the eyes of his wife for the first time in true color. And he is overwhelmed. If, it's, if those are viral videos today in our technological age, imagine first century Palestine. Imagine first century Israel. Imagine Jesus walking around and what happens? Jesus heals someone born blind. This man can see for the first time ever. These two men can see now for the first time, and they are overwhelmed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel, they say. This is astonishing stuff. This would get the local news. People, no wonder, are crowding around the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just say, if these miracles are nothing but the crumbs, right? If these miracles are nothing but a small touch from Jesus, imagine what the case will be in the resurrection of the righteous. The day is coming when you will receive a glorified body. I love Sinclair Ferguson, his illustration. He, he was a semi-professional golfer, if you know that. Uh, and Sinclair Ferguson was an excellent golfer. And I think I told this once several years ago, he was at a driving range. And he had an old cruddy driver. And he's just hitting the balls there. And a guy gets up next to him with a state-of-the-art, extraordinarily expensive driver. And after a while, Sinclair says, you know, you, you mind if I, uh, maybe the guy offered it to him. He says, you, you want to give it a try? This thing's brand new. You got to try this thing. I think is what happened. So Sinclair Ferguson takes this guy's driver. And Sinclair says, I lined, up, I lined it up there. On, I hit the ball. And he said, the ball went perfectly up out straight. It was one of the best drives he said I'd hit in a long time. He said that I hit the second one, exact same thing. Just up, out, straight, long. It was an incredible drive. He says, imagine this. If the difference that that driver could make is so dramatic, he said, think about this. In the resurrection of the dead, right now we are dealing with a fallen body with indwelling flesh and sin. There's temptation at every corner. Romans 7 says when we want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Every single time we want to do the right thing, evil is whispering in our ear, right? That's the, that's the body that we have, the body of death, Paul calls it, that we are wrestling with, that we are fighting against every day of our life. We will fight that battle until the day we die. But Jesus is going to give us one day that glorified, resurrected body. That body, Sinclair Ferguson said, it's a body within which there is no indwelling sin. There's no more battle with sin anymore. It will be, he said, easy not to sin. It will be easy to rejoice in the Lord. It will be hard as in impossible to be overcome with anxiety. Sinful fear, you will never feel again. Depression, gone. Anxiety, gone. Discouragement, gone. Fear about the future, gone. It will be easy to trust the Lord. It will be easy to obey the Lord. It will be easy to delight in the Lord, be thrilled by the Lord, to see the glory of the Lord. We will see his face. That's the body that's coming. So if the miracles here are as stunning as they are, imagine what's coming when Jesus unveils the fullness when he returns. But let me add an edge of warning to this. Imagine the fate of those who reject the Lord Jesus as well when he returns. No one in the Bible 
uses the word Gehenna. We translate it hell. No one uses the word hell, Gehenna, more in the Bible than Jesus. Jesus also has another warning. Yes, the future new creation will be better than you can possibly imagine. If a viral video of someone fixing colorblindness gets 10 million views on YouTube, imagine what is coming when he returns. But on the other side, imagine what is coming when God's righteous wrath and punishment comes down on sin and on sinners who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. I don't want to get, this is not in my notes, but let me just add something right here. You, you hear about what Hamas terrorists did a little over a week ago in Israel. How terrorists went through the wall at Gaza and through 22 cities and villages and murdered children, families, households, taking people captive. Horrific, horrific stuff. I'm sure you have seen some of this over the last few weeks. What's amazing to me is this. There's even a cry in the secular heart to say, justice must be done. This is wrong. It must be dealt with. Where is that coming from? That is coming from the image of God that says there is true evil that exists in the world and it must be handled. It must be handled rightly. And only ultimately God can bring the final and righteous and full judgment and justice that, that, that needs to come. But let me say a couple things on that. Number one, what we've seen in the news proves to us again that evil is real. Number two, it proves to us justice is something that we need to have happen. But here's the third point that gets overlooked. If God brings down justice on us, It's not simply Hamas terrorists who are in trouble, it's you and me who are in trouble. If we are not in Christ, then we are exposed with our own sin. It may not look as outwardly obvious as the terrorism that we're seeing, but we have our own gossip and slander and God-hating and disobedient to parents and lustful and prideful and jealous and envious and living for all the wrong things and worshiping all the wrong things. If If God brings justice, guess who gets it? I do. And so do you. So we do need justice, but we need a God of grace who can usher in the kingdom and it can save us by his blood. And Jesus is telling us in this story, if we come to him with our need, if we come to him asking for mercy, if we come trusting that he's the son of David, he's the powerful one, he's the merciful one, then guess what? We can stand complete in Christ before the holy face of the Father and not be afraid of final judgment. Instead, we can be confident, like 1 John says, when we see him, we will see his face, we'll become like him because we will see him as he is. So these are some of the things in the background of what we see in this text. Now let's move forward here. Let me mention this. One, one quick spiritual application of blindness. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in the case of unbelievers, Satan, the God of this world, you know, lowercase g, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds, this is spiritual blindness, blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The ultimate blindness that we need healing from is not physical. It's the blindness of the mind and of the heart that fails to see glory in Jesus. You hear it? They, he's, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The ultimate need for new sight comes in the gospel when God opens the eyes of our heart and we no longer see Jesus as boring, maybe historically interesting like a different historical figures we could name, but not personally life-transforming and engaging at the level of how I live my daily life, not radically orienting my affections. And that's what we need. We need the blindness of our hearts removed. And Jesus touches these men, an act of grace. They couldn't see his compassion, so he touches them. Look at verse 
28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Just very quickly, why didn't Jesus want this news to be spread? Because remember, this, the news would have been spread, we found the Messiah. The son of David just gave us our sight. That would be mistranslated in every person's mind at that time in that culture as a political revolutionary, a Messiah, has come to set us free from Roman oppression, and therefore it would have led to the wrong kind of situation that Jesus did not want just yet. Jesus wanted it to be clear that he was a Messiah, not who kills the Romans, but who dies under the Romans. He's a very different kind of Messiah, and he waits until the cross, until this can safely be made fully public for the nations. Okay, that's, what, that's why he says, don't tell anyone, but they tell anyway. Now, I told you my last point was going to be brief. I'm going to make it even briefer. Point number two, uh, we'll move to a close here. Point number two, the transformation of a mute demon-oppressed man. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, I want to end on this point here. How we respond to Jesus is the most important thing in your life. So the most important thing in your life is not whether your professional success has gone the way you wished. Uh, The most important thing in life is not how much money you have in savings, how the stock market's doing, how the economy's going, how big or small your house is, or how new your car is. That's not, what's, that's not the most important thing in life, not even close to it. The most important thing in your life is how you respond to Jesus personally, right now. How is your relationship with Jesus at this moment? Not church, not Christian people, you and Jesus, how is that relationship going? And these people have very diverse responses, and none of them look very good, honestly. The crowd is just amazed, but amazement, that's cheap. You can be amazed at anything. It doesn't say they worshipped him. It doesn't say they believed in him. It just says they're, they're astonished. Well, of course, they're astonished by the miracle, but they don't truly get it. It doesn't sound like they're repenting. It doesn't sound like they are coming to Jesus that way. <clears throat> but more disturbing is the Pharisees' response. Verse 34, they said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we'll, we'll talk about the unforgivable sin on a later Sunday that's coming up later in Matthew. They are very close to that sin in this moment. It's when they are looking straight at the divine work of the Son of God and the Spirit of God, and they are attributing that very work to Satan himself. That is very close to the point of no return, the point of of absolute rejection of Christ. And they are right on the precipice of that, and Jesus will warn about that in the future. But listen, those people, no matter how religious they were, how they responded to Jesus is what makes everything or breaks everything for their eternity. Jesus said this, John 9, after healing the man in John 9, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Let us be those who see truly who Jesus is. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would, wherever we are, that you would give us sight of Jesus If anyone within the sound of my voice right now is not truly born again, does not have a new nature in Christ, 
is not a new creation in Christ where the old has gone and the new has come. And I pray that even now as we sing and even as I speak right now that you would bring regenerating grace and new eyes and that these people would see the glory of Jesus more clearly than ever before and be shaped by it, transformed by it, be in love with it. And God, for, for most of us probably in this room who the, 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 uh, the lenses of our vision get, get dirty, there's smudges on our sight of Christ, the image is blurred, we can get enraptured by other things so easily, sometimes we're slow to be caught up in the grandeur and glory of Christ. God, if, if, our, if our lenses need to be cleansed and clean so we can see you better, then I pray you would do that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, if there are impurities in our heart, and all of us have some degree of impurities in our heart, I pray that you would cleanse those impurities out that we could see you. Right now with the eyes of faith, and then one day with the eyes of physical sight, when we will see you at the return of Christ, God. Again, help us to fix our mind not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.